Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business, sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Jim Doyle. Jim's sales and leadership career was largely in the broadcasting business, which you'll be able to tell when you hear his voice. He started as a rookie seller with no accounts and found early success. This led to opportunities as a sales manager and station owner. For 30 years, he's helped salespeople make more money, serve their clients better, and find more joy in their sales career. Yet he has never stopped making sales calls. That makes the insights shared in his books and seminars incredibly real world. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jim. Oh, Diane, thank you. Absolutely. We're I hope the voice was broadcasting enough. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. You, you really do. You, you have one of those broadcaster voices, um, in my opinion. Uh, so today you. we're going to be talking about um, selling with a servant heart, which I think is such a great concept. And I would love it if you would explain what you mean by that. Well, Diane, as you, as you well know, so much, you, if you Google selling and you go to Google, it, 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 the number of responses that you see about closing or winning or, you know, overcoming, um, you know, frankly, some of that, just the amount of that sickens me. That's the sort of traditional way that salespeople were taught to, to be effective. And yet, when you study the really successful sellers that you've met in your career and I've met in, in mine, uh, they don't do it that way at all. Um, servant heart sellers, if, if I had to boil it down to just a couple of sentences, I would say servant heart sellers are obsessed with customer outcomes. Not just upset with the customer, obsessed with the customer, but a, with, with the customer getting everything and more that they're looking for in that transaction. Oh, that's so interesting. Customer outcomes. I love that. So yeah, why I, is that different from being customer focused? Well, so I, I would have always hoped that somebody would have described me as a win-win seller. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, and I would have hoped that that was the way that people would have described me that we dealt with in our company. So win-win means what? I win and, and the customer wins. Um, servant heart sellers are, um, quite frankly, completely focused on the customer win. And so for them, if it's good for the customer, they believe and act on the fact that it will ultimately be good for them, even if it might not appear in the short term that it is going to be good. And that's really a fundamental difference. It's it's, I'm so obsessed with the, out, the right outcome for the customer that um, I interviewed uh, A.J. Vaden uh, for uh, the book, and A.J. was a rock star, superstar salesperson 
uh, by every measure, still in her 20s, and she was selling $250,000, $300,000 consulting uh, projects to Fortune 500 companies. And, and she shared a story about uh, a person that she was dealing with for whom she just knew that they would not be able to engage because of their time commitments uh, with what they would have bought. And she went ahead and suggested a significantly less profitable, lower dollar cost option for her, uh, for their customer, that it was right for the customer. I mean, so, so, you know, in the short term, does that cost her money? Maybe some commission? Yeah. On the long term, does she build loyalty? Does she build connection? And does she build trust? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm so thankful for that explanation. I, I had a feeling that's what you were talking about. It reminds me of um, when I used to be you know, just a salesperson in sales uh, full time. And I would say to people, um, you should, oh, I sold printers and copiers. And I would say, you know, you should just go over to Office Max and, and get that printer. Right, and they would say, exactly. Right, they would say, okay, but don't you want the sale? And it's like, okay, but it's less expensive for you just to go over there because you're gonna have to pay me all these other things. And they sell the same exact piece of equipment. You can just go pick it up or, you know, actually have it delivered to you and it'll be. So it builds so much trust because then what they know is you're always going to tell them the truth, right? That if, even if they don't do business with you, they'll probably refer you. Yeah, and I think you have to believe uh, when you make that kind of comment, you know, wanted to go to Office Max for a, a less expensive option, you have to believe, and by the way, the owners and bosses of the companies you work for have to believe that in the long term, you're going to be more successful because of that right. attitude. That's, I think there's a, a whole issue of how leaders lead uh, servant heart organizations because uh, sometimes if, if I'm a leader and I am putting pressure on somebody to close deals or uh, I'm reacting negatively when a servant heart seller fights back with me about a customer issue, then I may lose that person. And, and by the way, um, from the interviews I did as I put this book together, you would be losing some of the most extraordinarily talented people you've ever seen who just aren't going to be, they're not going to, they're not going to trust you if they don't feel like you also as a boss have the, uh, have the customer's needs in mind. Right. That's such a good point. It's weird. This morning I was in a meeting and one of the gals was talking about how um, the company she works for, their big focus is 40 calls a day. And even their best salesperson company-wide doesn't do that. And instead of realizing that that's not even necessarily a thing, they still harp on their best salesperson, comp, you know, nationwide to do 40 calls a day. And that's not in anybody's best interest. When I interviewed uh, I, I, Justin Gurney for the book, Justin Gurney had a very unique situation. Uh, he worked for the NBA and he oversaw ticket sales uh, and he was sort of the NBA's consultant to the teams. And he would go out and he would look at best practices. The NBA culture is exactly what you just described. You know, do a hundred dials a day um, and, uh, you know, just 
Now the technology might say, do $100 a day to somebody who's opened your email. Um, so you said it, at every team, there were outliers. And the outliers probably didn't do 100 calls a day, but spent more time in determining how you might use a luxury box, what kinds of issues in your business um, might that be helpful for? And guess who were the high performers uh, across almost all of the NBA teams? The outliers. Yeah. And um, and guess, and then he went to run ticket sales for the New Jersey Devils, and, and then the pandemic hits. How do you, how'd you like to, you think, you think the <laughs> pandemic impacted us? How would you like to work for a team where nobody's entertaining and they're not playing any games and your building's closed? And um, during that period of time, almost all of those hundred dial guys were laying off their um, sales teams. The devils kept theirs on and guess who comes out of the pandemic in a stronger situation with deeper relationships, actually renewing business during a time when the team wasn't even playing, it was the New Jersey devils. So I wow. think I think your point, you know, you know, when I hear that, I think that's a, that's a manager, those are leaders trying to be, to still have a, ma a model of command and control. And I'm not sure that ever worked and I'm pretty sure it doesn't work right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I always say that what they really, what they're really doing is they've moved the goal. The goal isn't to sell. The goal is to do things their way. Right. Well, and if you take, you take your top salesperson, um, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to lie or they're going to quit. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to tell you they're making exactly. 40 calls a day. And they're not making 40 calls a day because I didn't and you didn't and nobody you. does. Right. And it's especially not possible. If you're, That's the other thing. It's still yeah. ridiculous. You can't even do it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think that, you know, so it's sort of, sort of interesting, maybe an aside, but maybe and then I'll circle back and show you how it's related. Uh, when we were, we interviewed a couple of researchers uh, for uh, the book and, and we were asking about, you know, are people that way naturally or can they be trained? But one of the researchers said, uh, you know, one of the things I think you'll find is that that may not be the natural default position, selling with a servant heart for men. He said, he said men, especially when they're younger, have, uh, he described it as this testosterone fueled desire to win. And, um, and he said, sometimes it takes a while to work that up. Well, I, I think some of those guys have been promoted to management and they're demanding 40 calls a week <laughs> <laughs> or a day. <laughs> exactly. You know? yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting though, the, the servant heart seller, and this is probably one of the key things I learned is that they just define win differently. Win for most salespeople is make the sale. Win for a servant heart seller is uh, have impact on the customer's business. Yeah. And so let's talk about closing. Instead of closing, you talk about gaining commitment. Will you explain what the difference is? Well, um, everyone listening to this uh, call, this podcast, has had the experience of having somebody try to close them. And, um, and, and yet, um, I don't know about, sometimes when that's so obvious, um, you don't react to that. Um, so what I find about great salespeople is they do so much more work before the call, before they're actually you know, explaining to a customer the options or what they might do or asking 
uh, for commitment. They do so much more work in the diagnosis part of the sales process, um, which, by the way, I could talk about for a full podcast um, because it's so often not the case with salespeople that they really effectively do diagnosis. A lot of them talk about doing diagnosis, think they do diagnosis, but you know, really don't ask in-depth business conversations, haven't prepared, and don't listen uh, without an expectation of, of uh, uh, hearing what their next question is going to be. So if I've done a great job in diagnosis, if I really understand what are the business issues that that customer is facing, and then I bring the solution for um, the right copy machine, the solution for the right advertising program, um, what I find is that closing becomes much more just a, when I say get commitment, it's like, um, does this make sense? Um, it, it's much more assumptive and it's, and it, but assumptive even sounds like a closing technique. It's just, we're in a conversation, we start to ask about, uh, does this make sense? We try to figure out if there's any issues that uh, are, are in the way. And then it just happens very naturally. I, I, you know, I, I love to sell. I love to make sales calls still. I, I don't particularly think I'm a strong closer, but I'm a great opener. I'm a great diagnostician. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analyst Sela Shifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts. So it's so interesting because I say closing starts at the beginning. Yep. It doesn't happen at the end. It's not one of those, if I do everything, you know, if I ask all the right questions or I say all the right things, I'm going to be able to do that, that whole fancy closing thing and, and they're going to jump at the chance. It's how do you start with that relationship building at the very beginning and how well are you listening? What sorts of questions are you asking and what research have you done? ahead of time so one of uh, i interviewed uh, dean tebow from landmark bank he uh, uh, ran their commercial uh, uh, banking side um and uh, they were an extraordinarily successful uh, bank um by the end of the interview i wanted them to have a branch in florida where i live because i was just so impressed by what he talked about and he said you know he said when you meet somebody for the first time what do they want to know they want to know do you know your stuff can I trust you? And is it worth spending more time with you? 
And the irony is the fastest way to answer those questions for a customer um, is not to say, yeah, you can trust me. It's really to ask them questions that have been prepared in advance uh, about their business and their situation um, to find out really what their, what their needs are. That's how you build the trust, as you say, in the beginning, um, that by the time you get to the end, if they've got a need and you've got a quality solution, it just all seems to work. Right, because it makes sense. You're both connecting the dots in exactly the same way. Yeah, I, I mean, our, our consulting company that served the TV business that continues to exist in my semi-retirement or mostly retirement, um, we'll sell 40 or $50 million worth of advertising for TV stations around the country um, and, and TV and digital. And, and I doubt that there's ever a time when everybody feels like we've been an aggressive, obnoxious closers. I mean, we ask for commitment for sure, but it's not because that just makes people just makes people cringe. I think yep, I do makes me cringe. Isn't it crazy that we were taught all of these behaviors that no one likes, they don't like doing it. They don't like being the recipient of it. And, and that supposedly was how we were supposed to be successful at sales. <laughs> I, I, I remember uh, being in a big seminar uh, and uh, a guy on the stage was, uh, you know, I was an attendee. I was, uh, you know, with my sales team, and this guy is uh, uh, talking about how he closes and he sells insurance. And he said, you know, if I have this young couple and uh, they've got a couple of kids bouncing around, he said, I tell them a story. Uh, I tell them a story about another young couple and how they had a couple of pretty cute kids like you, and how unfortunately I was unable to sell them insurance that day. And how did I feel not six weeks later when uh, I read that those parents, those precious kids' parents had been killed in a tragic car accident? And he said, and I, I, I'll say to them, say to the customer, and if they were here today, what do you think they would tell you to do? And he said, that's what I call the back the hearse up to the door and let them smell the carnation's clothes. And, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but at 25 years old in that room, I was sitting there going, damn, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> How could I do that? But, you know, what, what, do you, what do you learn? When you redefine winning from making a sale to making a difference, um, you're not going to be backing the hearse up to the door to let him smell the carnation. Seriously, that's just gross. Wow. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> yeah, so, I know. think <laughs> <laughs> you just stopped me in my tracks. I'm that, that's really but, terrible. But 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 also when you think about you know the folks that you know, um, who are really really successful that you uh, uh, in the, all the work that you do with with the companies and uh, I find that they're not that way at all. And uh, yeah. one of my missions in this book is uh, uh, I, I, we have so many of our you know, younger kids, my kids, who just would re, you know, just resist selling and thinking about selling as a career because they hear about or see the media stereotypes of what sales really is. Yeah, right. Listen, I, I argued, my father was a salesman and he was very successful and he always had his customer's best interest in mind. 
and and I had the opportunity to watch him sell. I still argued with the owner of the company I worked for when they said, you have to go into sales. I argued with them for a year about there's no way I'm going into sales. Even though I, I had seen it done well, still that stigma is remarkable. And um, it, it appears that that turned out to be a pretty good decision. Well, Oh, to go ahead and do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it, right. And then when the company I worked for decided to start selling copiers, I went in and said, um, so do I have to sell copiers like copier salespeople sell them or can I sell them like I sell? And the owner said, oh, just sell like you sell, you know, get out of my office. <laughs> Thank God. Cause I would have had to quit. That I, I was no going to say that's a, that's a smart owner. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Yeah, that's a smart owner. I think, I think leaders who can allow people to do it in a slightly different way um, yeah. are, uh, that's important. Yep. Well, they have to really understand what you're talking about, which is ultimately it's better for your company, for your salespeople to be servant sellers than win-win. And I think when companies can create that kind of culture, obviously that's huge, but I think the most significant thing is that's got to come from the top. Yep. Um, you know, uh, I, I love the line, uh, Neil Dempsey's line that says, when a ship misses the harbor, it's seldom the harbor's fault. <laughs> and, you know, um, if, if I, I'm going to uh, impact change, and that's got to be a leader who buys into it. And um, and sometimes, especially for um, people who are in big corporate settings, that means you've got to have the courage of your convictions to push back against a, uh, a corporate setup that may be the ones driving the 40 calls a day. I know it's tough, isn't it? Uh, it's tough. It's easy. I think it's easier for me and you to say who aren't uh, having to answer those phone calls or emails from corporate um, than it might be for somebody who's in that situation. Particularly, um, you know, I, I, I was always just, I, I, I say to sales managers all the time, if you don't have a plan, they have a plan. And so what they, what they want, so many corporate leaders that I've met uh, hate yes men but do everything in their power to create them. <laughs> That's so true. Is it? And so yeah. uh, they, they, they push and push and push and they really want you to push back um, and say, no, I wanna do it this way because at the end of that conversation, they're gonna say, okay, but make the number because that's what they really want. And, um, but so many managers don't have the courage to push back and, and maybe I wouldn't as well. It's a lot easier to do that as an old guy who doesn't have a corporate boss than, right. it, would be, than it would be when uh, I, maybe when I was trying to do that, you know, 25 years ago. For sure, right, I get it. Yeah. Okay, I wanna talk a little bit about um, the customer uh, not always being right. And what do you do? Because you say the customer is not always right, which I, I agree with. But you know, tell the listeners like, what do they do when the customer is not right? 
Well, that's a great question. I, I think, first of all, there's a presumption in um, the fact that I'm going to even write about that, that uh, I have built a relationship of trust with that customer, which frankly doesn't have to take a lot of time if I've done um, a really thorough diagnosis effort. So let me be specific about what I say to customers um, and what I learned from the people we talked to. They'll, they'll say, look, you talked about the outcome being this, um, and this is what we need to accomplish, and, and this is what's important, and is that still the case? And yeah, well, if that's still the case, what um, I think you're trying to accomplish here won't do that. That's what I mean by pushing back. Yeah, right. It's just being honest enough, driven by the fact that I'm obsessed by outcome, being honest enough to say to a customer, what you're looking to do here, even with us, may not be the right way to do it. I get it. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. And don't we have a, don't we have a responsibility yeah. to do that? Yes. Right? Yeah, we do. Right. Yeah. Because it's about their, you know, helping them get to their outcome. Look, I, and I also believe, and I think we should probably say this, I think I can say anything to a customer at all if I say it with love. Sure. I mean, if I say that's a stupid decision, I really don't. That's not what we mean by by telling the customer they're wrong. <laughs> you know, we're not we're idiot? not yeah. We're not trying to be confrontational. We're trying to come from it from a truly uh, uh, desire to make a difference uh, to them to serve. And if I say it from that desire and I say it quietly and I'm not a jerk, you can say anything to a customer. And yeah. Diane, you've you've done that thousands of times in your career as I have as well. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. And they are a little stunned, but they appreciate it. They're, they're not stunned because you've been mean because you haven't, but that just that you would tell them something that they needed to hear. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to sell them something. But, but I think you should, we should also layer to that, layer onto that, um, that there is a doing that uh, creates a responsibility uh, that you really know your stuff yeah and that and that you're not doing that based upon your opinion but rather based upon either understanding what other customers have gone through understanding what customers of your colleagues have gone through so that you're walking into that uh, pushback with um, credibility and belief um, that and not just what I think. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I one of the I wrote 10 lessons and and um, in the book and one of them really was the responsibility of trust because I, I hung up for one of these interviews and realized um, these folks build these build these extraordinary relationships. I'm talking about companies who do that and individuals who do that. Well, if I get to that level of trust with a customer, boy, uh, you better bring them the right ideas and the right answers, because if not, um, then I think you probably, that, that's malpractice. Well, yeah, and it's, it's what you said before, that you have an obligation 
to do right. it. I, I'm not sure salespeople realize the obligation that they have to their customers. Well, isn't it the evolution I think we make from, from you know, the relationship is transactional to realizing that I truly have an opportunity to make a, a lot more difference. And, and you know, the, the thing that I can't help but mention is uh, what's going to bring you more joy? Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember being in a, in a car dealer's office. I was there on behalf of a media organization and a, and a sales rep comes in and he's excited because he had a high gross profit on a deal, which is how car salesmen are frequently paid. Um, and the manager said to him, yeah, you put that guy to sleep. And um, I thought, boy, that's what I want to go home and celebrate tonight with my spouse. <laughs> Honey, let's go to dinner. I put a guy to sleep today. You know, I don't know about you, but there's no joy in that for me. I, I know, none. There's no joy in that for me. And uh, this is a profession, sales is a profession where it, it can be lucrative and joyful when we do it correctly. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so fulfilling. Yeah. The last thing that I want to ask you about is price negotiation negotiations will you share you know what servant like how servant selling impacts price negotiation uh, boy that's another it's another great uh, question so so um you know the challenge today is that almost every salesperson in almost every industry um has challenges with being uh, treated as a commodity yeah. and um there's always somebody who will sell it for less money um, so how do I avoid being a commodity? Um, I would frequently draw an equation on a flip chart um, when I was working with a group of salespeople that said value equals price. Um, I will never pay you more for an item than my perception of the value. Um, a massive percentage of salespeople um, use that equation to constantly go back to their bosses and say, we need to lower the price. Yeah. So that the price is lower to the client's or customer's perception of value. But there's another side to the equation, which is what do I do to add value? And what I believe with every fiber of my being is that sellers who serve, sellers who listen, Sellers who are thinking long-term and not about the next order are maybe the biggest creators of value in that process. Now, that's not enough to have me pay you $10 for a gallon of milk that I can get for five someplace else. And I don't wanna have anybody um, think that I'm completely naive to the real world. Uh, I have <laughs> negotiated, I have, uh, had pricing that wasn't exactly what I, I wanted it to be, but I'm always constantly trying to look at how do I add value? So the quality of my solution and the quality of my approach are what's going to be the biggest creators of value. And most salespeople don't think enough about that in all the steps that we've talked about previously um, to how do I actually create that perception of value? Is part of the ability to do that, um, does it hinge on the how well you do diagnosis at the beginning? 
I, th I think so because it, um, what it does is it uh, gives me the information to know what really are the, are the business issues. Um, most, you know, I said earlier, most people uh, don't do enough time in diagnosis. In the advertising business, their idea of diagnosis was, um, how's the market right now? How's your business? So what are you doing for advertising? They're immediately moving to the things that advertising does. Um, for Landmark Bank, when they would meet a customer for the first time, their conversations were 40 minute conversations about what the business issues are that might require them to use a commercial to need money. So they were so much more aware of um, somebody thinking about perhaps selling, um, perhaps somebody looking at an uh, ESOP transaction, uh, somebody uh, whose business might be ready for uh, some expansion that re might require lending. Um, they viewed themselves not as selling money, but as selling um, a whole relationship, a whole banking relationship. And um, when Dean uh, interviewed me, he said, you know, we won't be the cheapest guy in town. Um, we'll be competitive, but we're not going to be the cheapest guy in town. But what we feel we bring is the best solutions. And uh, those uh, clients of ours know we're committed to their success. That, that just speaks volumes. Yeah, he even calls them commercial bankers and not commercial lenders. That's his whole team. And, uh, and trains more on the first meeting diagnosis than probably 95% of the banks in America do. Wow. Wow, that's great. So Jim, tell the listeners um, about the book and, you know, what, what, I mean, you've given us a lot of information about what it's about anyway, but the book, how they can get it, how they can find you, everything you think they should know, please. <laughs> well, we'll do the uh, type A version of that uh, uh, quickly. Uh, 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 they can find me uh, on LinkedIn at TV Jim Doyle. Uh, the book is Selling with a Servant's Heart. It's on all the platforms, uh, including uh, Amazon. Um, for salespeople, um, uh, I think a whole bunch of our sales, 40% of our sales have been Audible. So it's on the Audible platform uh, as well. Uh, and uh, I think we've, uh, in your interview, you've managed to hear me talk a whole lot about 10, ten lessons on the path to increased income and, and greater joy. And frankly, uh, both of those are significant. The first word of the book is selling. It's not a book that's uh, about, you know, uh, somebody said a, a, a la 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 book. Uh, it's a book about being more effective, but also finding so much more joy in doing it. That's so great. I, I so appreciate you spending this time with me and sharing this information. And I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It, well, it's like uh, talking to uh, my, my, my sister. We're also that's on the same page. Right? It's wonderful. <laughs> I and so uh, I, I, I should wish I could argue with you more, but damn. I know, <laughs> so, but you know. So, great minds so think alike, right? Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I, I so appreciate you spending this time with me and my listeners and really giving them information that I know is tremendously valuable for them and their success. So thank you. And listeners, thank you. You are who we're doing this for. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. 
Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.